Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Yeah, I got my name right. Good to see you all this morning, and while the kids are going out, I want to just take a moment to congratulate uh, Paul and Carol Murray on 50 years of being married. Coming Saturday, right? Saturday. Saturday. And this has not been an easy year for them, obviously, but this is where we see people living out the vows that they've made to one another on the day that they were married, for richer or for poorer, through sickness and in health, better for worse, until death shall you part. So thank you for being such a great example of uh, a godly marriage. We appreciate that. All right. Um, We are going to pray, and then we'll get into John chapter 18, our next section in the book of John. I ask you to pray with me, please. Father, we bless you this morning, and we declare that you are the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power the glory, and the victory, and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. As we approach you in the throne of grace this morning, would you heal us of our sins and make us one again practically with you by virtue of being forgiven through Christ? As we come together as your body in the Lord's Supper, Later on, when we declare that unity, would you help us to, with one voice, bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. And Lord God, as we approach your word, as we read it now, we ask, Father, that we would see it and know it and live it. You would prepare us for it. And all these things we pray in the name of Christ, our great God and our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, or some form of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 11, and uh, we are going to, excuse me, John chapter 18, 11 verses in chapter 18, John chapter 18, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 11, and uh, we are grateful to God by giving us His Word this morning, and His Word is a, is a lamp unto our feet It is a light unto our path. So as we read God's word, I invite you to stand and give attention to the reading of his word, for we know he is speaking to us at this time. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, 
knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And God's people said, Amen. Thanks. Please be seated. we look at uh, our roadmap of the Gospel of John, and we saw this last week, we see where we are, you are here. We're at the beginning of uh, chapter 18. We finished chapters 1 through 17, and now we enter into the next three chapters, which deal with what is often called the passion of Christ, that is his suffering, Sometimes the Passion of Christ is, refers to the Passion Week and all that happened. Usually it refers to the betrayal and arrest and denial and the, uh, the, the trials and the beating and the scourging and the mocking and the crucifixion and his death. Usually that Passion ends with his death. But it is a sweeping Passion and it is referred to in John's Gospel as the hour because it refers to more than just his suffering, but it refers also to his burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven to to complete all things. Eventually, the resurrection. We've seen that phrase, and if you read through John's gospel this week, uh, really early on, Jesus says, "My, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. Later on, his time has not come, his time has not come. We finally get to this portion, and he says, my hour has come. Even last week, uh, rather in chapter 17, we saw where he said, glorify me with yourself with the glory which, which we had before the world was. He begins that chapter with, Father, glorify The hour has come, your son, to glorify him, that the son may glorify you. And he's praying to be glorified with the glory that he had before the world was. In other words, he's going to glorify him with his obedience to all of the mission that God has given to him. And he's returning to the Father, and that will complete the hour of glorification. So we are at the beginning of chapter 18. 18, 19, 20 deal with 
Crucifixion and Resurrection, chapter 21, is the epilogue. And I will tell you right now, this is where we're at on the first Sunday of September. The last Sunday of Advent of this year, we will finish John. Yay! (laughs) Which will mark two years in the end of John. So this tells us where we have been, and now we know we're coming down to the last leg. It's a long leg, but we're, we're heading that direction. So we move on to today's passage. Today's passage, which is uh, control in the midst of chaos. Jesus is in control in the midst of chaos. Let me ask you a question. How do you do in chaos? How do you do when everyone's yelling and screaming? How do you do in those high emotional uh, situations where the intensity is high, everything is out of control? How do you control your emotions? Do you keep your composure? Do you control your words? Are you in control of your emotions? Controlling your tongue? Do you control your thinking and your reasoning, or are you caught off your heels and become a basket case? Well, as Jesus is in complete control of chaos, so is he in complete control of the chaos in our lives. That's what we're looking at this morning. As Jesus is in control of the chaos that he is facing, so is he in control of the chaos that you are facing, that we are facing. This is what this passage is all about. This is actually what we're going to see throughout the rest of the passion of Christ, that he is indeed in control. It appears like things are stacked against him, and and we don't know how is this going to turn out. We know how it's going to turn out. And the reason we know it's going to turn out... The way it does is because we've read ahead, but also we know because he is in control. True to John's purpose, we will see throughout this passage that Jesus is who he, he said he was. Jesus is who he said he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. He will faithfully and obediently keep the mission that the Father has given to him, the mission of redemption for us. This mission is the judgment for sin that broke the world that we live in, and the world is still broke. His sacrifice for sin on our behalf is the ultimate answer to all that ails the world today, everything. And he is about to complete that mission. And so that's where we go this morning. So in verses 1 through 3, the scene is set. This is the scene. The scene is set in verses 1 through 3. And the scene is this, Jesus against Satan. Or we might say, Jesus against good and evil. Light versus dark. Truth versus falsity. But it is ultimately Jesus versus Satan. Because as we'll see, Satan entered into uh, Judas uh, that earlier that night, and they come back. Judas comes back, and so does Satan, entering into the garden. So this is the scene that, we're, that we see this morning. Jesus versus Satan, good versus evil, light versus dark. So verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, and these are the words of Chapters 13 through 17, the upper room discourse, ending with the prayer. He's done with that, and now we move on with the narrative, with the story. The monologue is over, and now we see the story picking up. 
He's done. And he went forth with his disciples. I want you to notice that phrase. It's repeated three times. With his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. The Kidron was a, a, was a, a ravine, a wadi. Sometimes it had water in it uh, during the certain times of the year when there was a, it was raining. Oftentimes it was dry, but it was this dividing place that uh, divided uh, them between the garden. The garden is not mentioned by uh, John as to its name, but the, the Synoptic Gospels tell us this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, remember, John has a different purpose. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have the story of the disciples um, praying in the garden and falling asleep. And we have the story of Jesus pouring his heart out to the Lord, asking him, Lord, isn't there any other way? <clears throat> and, he get, and, and the disciples keep uh, falling asleep. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. John has a different purpose. Consistent with John's Gospel, he is going to highlight the deity of Christ. So they were there in the garden in which he entered with his disciples. Says it a second time. Jesus versus Satan. Now Judas. Now Judas also, who was betraying him. He was in the midst of betraying him. He had just left them earlier in the night, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with the disciples. Three times, with the disciples. Judas, in, having received the Roman cohort, and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas has gone off, and uh, remember that Satan has entered into Judas, into Judas. This is the dirty work of Satan. It is evil. It is done in darkness. The betrayal and the arrest of Jesus occur at night. Back in chapter 13, it said this. They're in the upper room. And the beginning of that discourse, so when he had dipped the morsel, Jesus, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast. That's what they were thinking. Or else that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. It's still night. It's darkness. We have Jesus versus Judas. Satan is in him. This is the scene. We have not only Judas, but Judas has gone to the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders, and they have co-conspired together to arrest this man, this man, gentleman from Galilee, and his fishermen, this ragtag group, the Roman uh, cohort is a cohort of a battalion of Roman soldiers, 600 soldiers. Now, some believe that not all 600 were there, but hundreds were. Hundreds of them were there. And then the officers of the Jewish leaders, this is the temple police. And so uh, notice that the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees are not there. What have they done? They've sent their minions to do the dirty work. 
And we know that this slave Malchus is here. He's not Jewish. He's not Roman. He's another Gentile. And as uh, uh, Leon Morris points out, this is a picture of the world against Jesus. The whole world that lies in the lap of the evil one. Jesus against Satan, good versus evil, light versus dark. You have these two powers aligned against one another across this little wadi. Who will win? Many people think it's like uh, these two, this titanic struggle. It's like two football teams. Uh, who's going to win the game? They're evenly matched. We need, we, they, the outcome is in doubt. No, it's not in doubt. On the one hand, though, you have this overwhelming force. You have uh, as many as 600 soldiers all armed with lanterns and, 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 and torches and swords and clubs, it says in the, other, uh, in the other Gospels. You have overwhelming force, and then you have 12 men. Amongst them are two small swords. That's it. What's the purpose of the overwhelming force? They are outmanned. They are outgunned. The purpose of this overwhelming force is to intimidate them into submission. And that's what they wanted. But again, notice, with his disciples, three times, Jesus is still today with his disciples. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? He is with you. He is with us. He stands with us. He stands for you against the forces of evil, against darkness, against uh, Satan, if you will. All of those things. Jesus is with his disciples and the whole world is maybe arrayed against us and it seems that way, doesn't it? That the whole world is on this side and we are on this side and the outcome seems to be in question. No, it's not. We win. He wins. And that's where we are with him. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are never alone in the darkness. And we should not be surprised, however, when we are betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own who claimed to be a follower but was not. He proved to not be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures predict to us that there will be tares among the wheat, there will be goats among the sheep, and there will always be those who will betray us as well. And Judas is aligned against Jesus, Satan against Jesus himself. Yes, it's hurtful when when we are betrayed, and I'm sure it was hurtful for Jesus when he was betrayed, But the reality of a fallen world is that we face evil opposition. Don't ever forget that. Evil does exist in this world. All the Disney movies, all the the, the movies today, evil is just misunderstood. The monster is misunderstood. And and, and when he gets, when he's enlightened, then he's just really a happy little guy, right? No. Evil exists in this world. And it stands against us. Now, it looks bad at this point from a human standpoint. But Jesus is in complete control. That's what we see this morning. 
So Jesus maintains complete control and he demonstrates his deity. That's what we see in this passage. Uh, The scene is set, good versus evil, light versus dark, Jesus versus Satan, all lined up on one side. It appears to be overwhelming force against this ragtag group of Galilean fishermen. But Jesus is in complete control and he demonstrates to us in this passage his deity by four things. First, by his divine knowledge. He demonstrates complete control and he demonstrates his deity that he is God incarnate by his divine knowledge. Verse 4 says this, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? He demonstrates his control because he goes out to meet the foes. He doesn't, he's not hiding in the back and he says, Quick guys, hide me between some olive trees. Or I'll stand in the back, you guys be in the front. You know, they were asleep, but I think they were awakened because they could probably hear the trample of boots and the the lanterns were made out of terracotta and they'd be rattling back and forth and swords and clubs and, and, uh, and, and murmur and you could see the glow of them coming up the pathway and they were awake. Jesus knew that instead of stay, waiting, okay, just stay still, do what I tell you to do. He walks out front and he, he meets them head on. Why? He's in control. He controls the situation. They think they have the upper hand, but no. He will meet them on his own terms. This reminds me of first responders, you know, uh, firefighters and policemen and military. They run into the fray. When there's an explosion, they run toward it. When there's gunfire, they run toward it. When there is a burning building, they run into it. That's what they're trained to do. We run away, but they run to it. And Jesus runs into the fray for us. Those first responders, they don't know that the building may collapse. It might. They don't know that there might be a secondary explosion. They don't know whether there are snipers waiting to pick them off. But they do what they are trained to do. And Jesus, however, knows. We don't know. When we are in a very tough situation, we look back on it and we say, man, if I knew now... What, if I knew then what I know now about what I was just, going, just went through, I, I would not have made that decision. That's what we say. But Jesus knows. What does he know? He knows all that is ahead. He knows what is coming next. He feels the pain of betrayal right now. He knows that Peter will deny him. He knows the pain of that. He knows the the pain of the injustice of standing before this kangaroo court saying that he said things and did things that he knows he didn't say and he didn't do. He knows the pain of the humiliation that is coming, that he will be stripped bare that he will be mocked, that he will be scourged with a cat of nine tails until his back is hamburger bloody. He knows that. He doesn't feel it yet, but he knows that it is ahead. He knows that he will have to carry his cross up that hill all by himself. He knows that he will bear the pain of his feet and hands being nailed to a cross and shoved upright. 
he knows that he will be hanged there and roundly mocked again by passers-by, making fun of him. He knows that he will be counted as, a, as just a, a, a common thief. He knows that the, the wrath of sin will be poured out upon him. He knows that, all that is ahead. He went ahead anyway. Why? For you. He did it for you. He knows everything that is ahead. If we knew it, what was ahead, sometimes we would make different choices, but he made that choice for us, for our redemption, because of his great love with which he loved us. He knows all things. He knew that his hour had come, and he knew that all that the hour meant And so he knows, if he knows all things, he knows what is coming for you as well. Doesn't he? He knows your pain of being betrayed, maybe by a spouse or a former spouse. He knows the the, the pain of betrayal, being betrayed by a friend or a so-called Christian or a, a boss he knows the, the, the pain that you have of being unjustly treated, maybe because of the color of your skin, maybe because of your sex, because you're a woman, maybe because of your faith. And he knows that because he said, the world will hate you because they hate me. And he knows when you are hated. He knows the pain of your physical suffering. Maybe you have chronic pain. Maybe you've just been diagnosed with some pain. Maybe you've had surgery. Maybe you're going to have surgery and you're afraid of the pain. He knows that. All that is ahead. He knows the pain of the guilt of your sin that still comes back to you from time to time and you go, why did I do that? I did it again. He knows that pain. He knows the pain of you being mocked. He knows the emotional pain of abuse that maybe you have gone through. He knows the pain of death. Perhaps you have lost someone recently or a long time ago and you still have the pain of that grief or you have been given an expiration date by your doctor recently that uh, the cancer is not work the, the cancer treatment is not working and you need to prepare yourself. He knows that pain. But though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Somebody say it. For you are with me. He is with his disciples. He is with you. But remember, he knows how it will end because it is not just the passion of his suffering, but the hour includes his resurrection. And it includes his ascension into heaven when it is all done. He knows all things that will come upon us, but he knows how it will end, and so do we, and we find our solace and our faith and our help with him there. So, yes, 
Jesus maintains complete control and demonstrates his deity by his divine knowledge. Second of all, by his divine being. By his divine being. We'll see this in verses 5 through 6. The idea of being is what philosophers call ontological. Uh, This is an argument about things that exist. Uh, What is is the the essence of of your existence and, and who you are and what you are? You are a human being. He is the divine being. Not a divine being. He is the divine being. And he demonstrates it even by the fact that he knows all things, but he demonstrates it in a different way in verses 5 through 6. Verses 5 and 6 say this. After he had asked the question, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, which is the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. John adds this once again to give us, once again, that picture of Jesus on one side, Judas and his minions on the other side. So when he had said to them, I am he, they stagger back and fall to the ground. Can you imagine the clatter of the swords and the clubs and the lanterns and the men falling all over each other, tangled with one another? What is that all about? Yes, hallelujah. It is a matter of praise the Lord is what it is. Because as you see, when he says, I am he, that word he is in italics because it is just, he says, ego eimi, I am. This is perhaps, I think, one of the most understated events in all of the Bible. John just describes it without any comment. But by this time, the reader who is paying attention to that Jesus is being proved to be the Son of God, indeed deity, they read this and they say them fall, these, these soldiers falling down, they go, yeah, of course. When he said those words, of course. We have been seeing throughout our study and reviewed last week the seven I am statements. But those seven I am statements, each of them have a predicate. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here he just says, I am. If someone were to say to me, so who are you? And if I were to say, I am. No, no. Who are you? The correct answer is, I am Ben Orchard. But if I were to just say to the question, who are you, I am, it makes no sense. With Jesus, it makes perfect sense. Because he is using that that construction that demonstrates the name of God. From the very beginning of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the divine logos, the message to the world. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. And there isn't anything that has been created, it says, that has not been created by him. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God incarnate. And by these words, something happens, there is a, a 
flash of his power and his glory, just in the words, because there is no uh, description of any light of glory, like the Shekinah glory, it's just his words, I am. That's all that we, that we hear. But it's enough because it is powerful. His word is powerful when he says, I am. We saw this with the woman at the well. She said, uh, I'm, we're looking for the Messiah. And he said, I am. John 8:56, when he was uh, going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, they said, your father Abraham, he said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, how can you say that? Because you're not even 50 years old. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They said, mm, enough, we're going to do away with this pixie. They're going to die, kill him once and for all. And they try and kill him and he walks away from them because his hour had not yet come. Saul goes back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses had been in, had run away from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian, and he's out a sheep herder many decades later, and he sees this burning bush, and it is it is being burnt, but is not being um, consumed. Then Moses said to God, "Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name?" What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. So when they say, Jesus says, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus, he says, They say, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. His response is the same. It's God talking to Moses, I am. The self-existent one, the eternal one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Veiled in flesh, his glory. And when he just speaks, it is... It is not a theophany, which is an appearing of God, like a burning bush. It's not a theophany, like the pillar of fire. It's not a theophany, like the mountain quaking and the trumpet sound. He is the theophany. God in the flesh. And when he says those words, I am, the power is too great for them. And these hundreds of soldiers, they just fall over themselves, staggering back. And again, you can imagine the clatter and the guys tangled up with one another and, and they pulling, pulling themselves together by his word. The word of God. But remember the God of the word. Jesus told his disciples, he said, the, when I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to come And he will lead you into all truth. And all that we have that was written back after this is delivered to us as the word of God, the words of Jesus, because he is the the word of God incarnate. And so this is our rule of practice and faith. It is this only. It's not some philosophy that is the latest and greatest thing to hit the church nowadays or that's going through the world like wildfire 
that is trending this ancient truth found in Christ alone. Remember the God of the Word and the Word of God. And we need that desperately because this is the Word of truth. Sanctify them in truth, Jesus prayed. Thy Word is truth. Do you see a lot of truth today? We're all dismayed, and and the more I talk to people all the time, many things going on in people's lives. And the theme that keeps coming up in many conversations is, I don't know who to believe anymore. I don't know what to believe. Not, Not everyone is part of this, but we have people that have lied to us. We have, we have political leaders that have lied to us, continue to lie to us. Military leaders, some of them have lied to us and lied to one another. Academia and, and in the area of education, there are many people that are lying to us. Even in the medical field, unfortunately, there are people that are lying to us for political gain. Not all, no. But some, and so what does that do? What does that mean? We don't believe anymore. They have lied. And second of all, they're hypocrites. And third, they contradict this. That's why we all, this is where you need to go back to, okay? If you're confused about what the truth is, who's telling the truth, this is where you need to go. Please. This is the truth. We see the veracity and the power of the word of God for the word of God and the words of Jesus are one and the same. There are no words in this world that carry the same truth and trust, only his words. To the contrary, most of what we hear today are lies because Satan is the father of lies. Jesus has told us in this book and he is the God of this world and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We forget that. We're in a constant battle, and lies are assailing us. So we, as his disciples, must then, and therefore, evaluate all truth claims by the word of Christ. Because he is the great I am. He is deity. He is God incarnate. So, Jesus maintains complete control and he demonstrates his deity by his divine knowledge, by his divine being, and also by his divine sovereignty. All of his sovereignty, really, yes. He is sovereign in all things, but, but here in these few verses we see his sovereignty in the, in the sovereign grace of salvation, our salvation. Verses 7 through 9. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? So they've, they've collected themselves. They've kind of, you know, brushing themselves up for, off from, from falling all over one another. And they've got my sword again. Okay, here we go. Let's try this thing one more time. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He's again in control, isn't he? He's controlling the, the questions. And Jesus answered, I told you. That I am he. You, you, they, must, they must have braced themselves when he said, you know, whoa, 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 flinched a little bit when he said it a second time. I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way. By the way, this is the third time the phrase I am is 
repeated here. But do you see the picture of the gospel? If you are seeking me, fine. And he's standing forward with them behind him. He says, let them go. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus stands between us and evil. Jesus stands for us and with us. And he protects us. Think, what was, what was his face like at this point? I think of the, the Lion of Judah. But he's also the, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he says, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. And that's what he's doing. He's standing in our stead. He will die for us, and he will die because of us, and he will die instead of us. Ours is the sin. Ours is the, the, the shame. Ours is the guilt. And yet he stands in our place, and you see it right here. Let them go. You've said it twice to me. You're looking for me. You see how he's in control and he's a little bit of ninja stuff going on here. Looking for me, huh? Okay, you've said it twice. Let them go. And he said this to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He is sovereign over our salvation. He is the one who stands in our place, he lays his life down and he takes it up again for us. It's a beautiful picture of him standing and protecting us. He is with us. And this was to fulfill these words. Judas wasn't one of them. He proved that. And we see the clear contrast between Judas' betrayer on one side and Jesus in the middle and his disciples back here that he is protecting. Jesus is indeed, when you look at the scene, he is the crux of the scene, if you will. John 10, 27 through 30, say this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. It's a gift. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, a gift, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You are secure in Him, Christian. No one can snatch you out of His hand. You can't pull His fingers loose. And if you belong to Him, if you've been given to Him, you will not even try to pull and, and pry His fingers loose. Brothers and sisters, you are secure in Christ And the sovereignty of his salvation is seen in this passage again. For he is the great I am who knows all things, who has been given, you have been given to the Father, by the Father to him. Your soul belongs to him. You are one of the redeemed. And he will never, ever, not ever let you go. So when the enemy whispers in your ear, You're not worthy. 
You're not. But he is. When you stumble, and you will, and when you doubt, and you will, remember that he has a hold of you. You may not have a hold of him the way you'd like, but he always has a hold upon you, and he will never, ever, not ever let you go. Yes, amen to that. So what do you do when you stumble, when you doubt, when the enemy whispers in your ear? You get up and you keep going by faith because he is with you. Just keep going. Yeah, he forgives. You blow it, he forgives. Keep on going. So we see... um, that Jesus maintains complete control and he demonstrates his deity by his divine knowledge, by his divine being, by his divine sovereignty, and lastly, by his divine mission. He has a mission that he is going to complete and nothing is going to keep him from completing that mission. And it involves us. His mission does. Simon Peter then, having a sword, says in verse 10, He drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. John's gospel is the only one that includes the fact that it was Peter who did this and that his name was Malchus. So it's a detail that shows that he was really there. We've already seen about Malchus, but this is not about Malchus. This is about Peter. And it is mostly about Jesus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup, which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter enters the scene once again, just like Judas has entered the scene. The last time we saw Peter was the last time we saw Judas in chapter 13. And in that time, Peter said, I'm going away. Peter said, where are you going? He said, you can't come. He said, I will lay down my life for you. Basically, he said, I will die for you. But he didn't say, I will kill for you. That was wrong. He's trying to kill for Jesus. He's trying to defend the one who does not need to be defended. Jesus has his own defense, and he is our defender. Yes, we need to stand for him, but Peter, as often, was misguided and misappropriated. This is the second time that Peter has been roundly rebuked by Jesus. The first time was when uh, when Peter said, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, well, I'm going to build the church upon this rock. And he said, I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be delivered to the, to the, to the, to the evil side. And Peter said, no, we'll never let that happen. What did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Nothing can thwart the divine mission of redemption. It must take place. It is for our good. It is for his glory. Nothing can thwart the will of God in your life because he is divine, he is sovereign, and he has a mission to complete for your life as well. And that mission is good. It is for his glory in your life. And only the Son of God, who is God incarnate, could complete the mission that was given the mission of redemption. So we put these all together. 
Jesus maintains complete control and demonstrates his deity by his divine knowledge, by his divine being, by his divine sovereignty, by his divine mission. And so we end up where we began. As Jesus is in complete control in the midst of chaos, so he is in complete control in the midst of our chaos. Whatever chaos you are in. You may not be in control, and you're probably not. In fact, you need to give to him control. He is in control. With that, he controlled everything even up to his death, laying down his life for us. So we are going to take the communion cups, and I wish someone would bring me one. I want to go to Because you need to understand this. He knew everything and he knows everything for you. He knew, yes. Anymore. Yes. But we face this because of the ultimate hope of the resurrection. All the junk that we face in this world, all the stuff you face in your life, all the chaos that is getting you down. Breathe a sigh of relief today. He knows. He's in control. He stood in your place. We stand for him. We might die as he died, but that's okay. We know what's ahead. Father, we thank you for this bread, which represents the body of Christ, willingly given to be arrested to be unjustly charged, to be beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross and to bear our sins. And he poured out his blood as a sacrifice for us. And we remember this morning the truth of what that means because he rose from the dead and we declare his death until he returns for us. With that, we are assured, and with that, we say hallelujah, and we are grateful to you. So we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me.